Welcome to E3. My name's Eric. How you guys doing today? A um, couple exciting things going on this week. Yeah, I, I, you guys have heard, you know, Red Eye Coffee is open now at Capitol Circle, which pretty much means you can't find the staff in their offices at all now. But you can't find us at Red Eye Coffee Capitol Circle. Um, yeah, please go. Go there. Um, not just today for the open house, but like, again, like we say, you know, spend your coffee dollars there because it's such a cool thing for our community and it's such a cool thing for the world. You know, we don't, ho- we don't hoard this money. This is not a profit enterprise. This is a, this is a mechanism for us to serve the world that God has given us to live in and to do work in. So please do that. The other thing that happened this week, uh, you guys hear this every two years now at the Olympics have started and we love the Olympics in the Case household. You know, I think the medal count for the U.S. was is five. We got one gold, so I think we're actually tied with the lead right now. But um, anybody watch the opening ceremonies? A couple people. We watch most of them. We always like to watch as much as we can. We love the parade of, of nations, you know. There's a couple emotional moments, but for us, every four years, I get to tell this joke. The favorite moment of the parade of nations happens right about at this point. Djibouti. And it's, it's so, you know, you just can't miss it. Even like I think Matt Lauer and Meredith Vieira were doing the commentary on the Parade of Nations. Even Meredith Vieira, she's like, it's one time we get to make this joke. Djibouti is in the house. And I was like, whoa, go, all right. Um, so we're going to be tuning in. Uh, we watch as much as we can. We're kinda, I'm kind of bummed because my wife is out of town for the week. So, you know, like we love to watch the, the swimming events are our favorite. You know, like they just redline our blood pressure and our heart rate because we're just like screaming at these athletes. But we love it. We love it. We love it. Um, but so I want to start off today and tell you a little bit about some other stuff that's going on in, in my house. And uh, my son, I have a 13-year-old son. His name's Levi. And he is dabbling in songwriting. Uh, and this is a cool thing. You know, it's always cool when a parent, you know, as a parent, when you see your kids like just stretching their wings and expressing themselves in different ways. And so he started out, uh, he just sits down at my computer and he just starts working. He's, he's done a couple of remixes. He's remixed Seven Nation Army uh, by the White Stripes and he's um, uh, remixed the, I can't even remember, what the, what's the first Adele single? Rolling in the Deep. He did a remix of Rolling in the Deep. Uh, so he's got this kind of electronica thing going on, and he'll, but he also kind of works on his own tunes. Like he'll just dream things up and start putting beats and melodies and everything in there. Um, but here's what's funny about it is uh, along with creativity uh, comes frustration at times. And so I'll be in the house, and I'll start hearing these cries of frustration, ah, you know, from my office. And I heard one, I think it was maybe last week, and I'm, he's like, oh, man, blah, blah, blah. And I go in, and I'm like, what is, what's going on? He's like, I am all out of good ideas. He's like, I am just dried up. And I'm like, I, I don't think at 13, like, you've been doing this for maybe eight weeks. And he's like, I don't have any good ideas anymore, Dad. And I'm like, well, so we worked with him. And, you know, I was a, uh, was a songwriter. I still write songs occasionally. So I, I was just, you know, and I love to study creativity. And so I kind of just grabbed my whiteboard because that's another thing that Eric Case does. Like, he just draws on whiteboards. If there's a whiteboard in the room, I'm going to draw on it. So I said, son, I said, um, I said, a lot of people think creativity works this way. And I just drew the straight line, you know. And I, I said, a lot of, a lot of people think 
that creativity works in such a way that like, hey, I get an idea. I want to write a song. And then step A, step B, step C, step D, so on and so forth. And then, hey, the song is done. That's what a lot of people think. And I said, that's what you think. You think that you just come up with an idea, you want to do this thing, and then it's just this linear progression. But I said, that's not the way creativity actually works most of the time. It works like this. And below it, I just drew this. And I said, this is, this is how creativity works, Levi. I said, you, you have an idea, and then you start and you experiment, but then you take left turns and right turns, and you go back two steps, and you go forward three, and, and you create, you just follow this long meandering sometimes path. But you eventually get there if you can just stay in it long enough, right? And so that actually seemed to work, and, and he got back to work on stuff. And the reason I share that with you today is that for me, um, the life of faith has looked a lot more like the bottom line that I drew than the top one, right? And so I want to tell you today, that like, like we're going to talk about Jason Bourne. We're going to talk about some things that, um, that I saw and made me, that the movie made me think about. But today is what some of us in church culture uh, is, is going to be like testimony day, Okay? which means I'm going to tell you my story, which I'm going to tell you um, kind of how this thing has worked for me. And maybe you're going to identify with some of it. Maybe you're not. But as I thought about the movie and as I thought about what God wanted me to say today, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to lay this out in terms of this is, this is Eric's story. And so Eric's story was such that, you know, God intersected my life at a couple different times. You know, I, I grew up in the church. I wandered away, as, as a lot of us do kind of had to write my own story, so to speak. And a couple times God showed up in my life in really, really powerful ways. And I think that I had this expectation, even in going into adulthood, that once God intersected in my life, that my life would look like that first line that I drew. And that there's this moment that God kind of gets us, and then it's just a straight line, you know? And then we get our angel's wings and our toga, and we're good to go. But what I found is that that's not the story that I wrote with my life, right? So God intersected multiple times, showed up in my life, and I responded. And there were words said and commitments made. But still, as I walked forward from those moments, I found that I took left turns, and I took right turns, and I went back two steps and forward three and wandered and wandered and wandered. Now, I'd like to think that I am making progress along that journey, but I just want to lay that thought out there for some of you today that sometimes the faith journey isn't a straight line. Sometimes it looks kind of confusing, and that is okay. And as I live my life and as I was thinking about today, um, faith intersected my life and, and showed up in my life and did particular things to my outlook on my life. And what I, what I mean by that is like the first thing that faith kind of dealt with me and the spiritual life kind of dealt with in my life was my future. So, you know, I, I had these moments with God and I, I knew enough about what it meant for God to know me and to love me that I was like, man, okay, the ultimate future of my life is decided. Like I know how this story is gonna end and it's gonna end with God telling me, you are my beloved. Because that's what he tells me now. So the future was decided. 
I was like, I know how this is going to end up. And then eventually, faith started dealing with my present. You know, it wasn't always pretty. And it's not always pretty now. But my faith for me is not just something that determines this maybe not so far off day when I die, but it determines my reality now. My allegiance to Jesus and my commitment to the spiritual life is real. And it affects my every day, my present. Here's where it gets really dicey for me. Where faith broke down for me and still breaks down today is how I deal with my past. Because I know where I'm going. And where I am, I figure out on a day-to-day basis. But where I have been and the things that I have done and the things that I have seen for me have been problematic. This has been the biggest hurdle of my life. Maybe it is for you, maybe it's not. This is just testimony time, story time. And if you're, when you're having testimony time, a lot of times church people just say amen if, when something good happens. So just feel free to let fly with the amens today. You're not going to bother me. So the central question for me then in my life has really been, how do I deal with my past? <laughs> how do I deal with my past I've got the present I'm working on. The future is, is, is decided. But the past, the things that I've done, the things that my eyes have seen, the places my feet have walked, for me has brought up shame, confusion, anger, frustration. And I think maybe for some people in a room this size, I'm not the only one. And the reason I talk about that is because, in a way, this is Jason Bourne. This is his story, all right? And what I mean by that is uh, his past is an amazing part of the the present plot line of the Bourne movies, okay? So let's just talk about the movie for a second. Anybody see it? How many people saw the movie? We love these movies in the Case household, man. We see them. We've seen most of them multiple times. Um, big fan. The, the current one I thought was funny. Uh, Shana and I saw it in the theaters, and then I saw it with the staff later this week. Does anybody remember how the, how the current movie begins? Okay. It's a voiceover, a kind of an, you know, the, the, the video's kind of emerging, and then it's a voiceover of Matt Damon saying, I remember everything. And the first thing I thought is like, no, you don't. <laughs> Because the entire premise of the Jason Bourne franchise is the fact that he doesn't remember everything. The whole thing is about him going on a journey trying to figure out what he can't remember. And I'm like, if you remembered everything, we wouldn't have a movie. (laughs) But I'll give him that. So the, the plot line, if you don't know it, is essentially this. Jason Bourne is this guy. The very first movie, he wakes up floating in the ocean. He doesn't know how he got there. doesn't know who he is. And then as the, as the plot unfolds through the franchise, like we find that like he just, he knows how to do things. He has been trained somehow in his past as an operative, as a killer, as an assassin, as a spy. And no big spoiler alerts, but the, the central theme of the movie is at some point in his life, he had another identity. 
And again, no big spoiler. At some point in his life, his name was David Webb. And so they discover in one of the movies, like, dude, you're not, your name's not Jason Bourne. Your name's David Webb. And David Webb has this whole other history. And David Webb is not a trained killer. And David Webb was a soldier. And, and maybe David Webb didn't even want to do all the things that Jason Bourne has done. And then uh, what plays out over so many of the movies is this tension. Is, is Matt Damon David Webb? Victim? Innocent? Volunteer soldier? Or is Matt Damon Jason Bourne? Killer? Assassin? Which is he? And so, uh, like, Jason Bourne, uh, I feel like, I've got a similar problem, which is he's got things in his past that he has trouble reconciling and integrating into his life, and so do I. I have done things. I have seen things. How do they fit into my present reality? How do they fit into this world that I live in that God loves me? How do I get over these things or get past these things? So, uh, you know, Jason Bourne, every, every movie... Uh, I really do feel like every movie is almost the same movie, but I love him. So every movie, he kind of wakes up to discover a conspiracy. And he always has to go after the guy who's the head of the conspiracy. In the first movie, it was, I think, Chris Cooper. Oh, no, that's Tommy. That's the guy from the first, that's the guy from the current one. The first movie, it's Chris Cooper. And then he goes and he, he takes care of Chris Cooper. But then in every subsequent movie, Part of the movie is Jason Bourne waking up to another conspiracy and realizing that there was another guy behind the guy that he dealt with last movie. So he has to go deal with Albert Finney, and then he has to deal with uh, David Strathairn, and then he has to deal with another guy who I don't know his name. But you see the pattern that's emerging. Here it is. If you're an elderly white man in Jason Bourne's universe, be scared. Because <laughs> he's coming for you. He wakes up to always discover there's another guy that I have to deal with. There's something else that I'm kind of vaguely aware of and, and I have to kind of figure out in my life. And so, like I said, he's got these two identities within him. David Webb, who has a history, and Jason Bourne, who has a history. Like I said, as I was thinking about this, I'm like, man, this is my life. It's almost like I have two people inside of me with two histories and two paths. So I've got this one side that is known by God and that is God's son and that is God's beloved. And I don't doubt that relationship, but I have this other thing inside of me as well that makes crazy decisions. Even so that I could wish that I could say all those crazy decisions, all that insanity is in my past but I still have a short temper. I still struggle with pride and, and arrogance and, and self-centeredness. And how do you deal, how do you live life when you have these seemingly two things at war inside you? So this is what the Bourne movie set up for me. He's got two people in his body, two mentalities, two histories, and he's trying to make sense of them. And I think eventually he has to come to the conclusion that, like, he is both of those things at once. Now, here's the good news. 
the good news is that the Bible in the New Testament in, in particular and the Gospels in particular are full of people, stories of people who have to struggle with this very, very thing. There's dozens of stories in the Gospels where somebody is living their life in one identity, in one manifestation of their life, and then this guy, Jesus, shows up and ruins everything. And all of a sudden, he offers them a new reality and a new identity. I could pick a dozen of these stories, but one just popped into my head. So we're going to like dive into a short little story in the book of Luke. It's about a guy named Zacchaeus who was a wee little man, and, and a wee little man was he. So if you have your Bible and you want to turn to Luke chapter 19, I'm going to just read through the text and uh, make some observations about what it's like when Jesus changes your identity. And just look at this, um, this great story. So it starts off this way. Jesus entered Jericho, made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They're referring to Jesus. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. But Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to what? Seek and save those who are lost. That's a cool story. Anybody else think that's a cool story? So a couple things um, that just kind of dig a little bit deeper into what's going on here. So who is Zacchaeus? I want to just kind of unpack who this character is because it highlights the story. If you've never heard some of this stuff, it's helpful. We're told that he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Oh, not just wealthy. He was very wealthy, right? So what's that mean for the story? Well, in the context, uh, if you were a tax collector in this culture, that meant a couple of things for your reality. It meant, A, that you were probably considered extremely greedy by your community, and you were considered a traitor to your own people. Why is that? Well, a tax collector in the first century uh, was, in, was empowered by Rome to collect taxes. Because when you have an empire the size of Rome, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, has armies going all over the place, you need to, f- you need to pay for, this, for these activities. So people in local lands would be entrusted to collect taxes, but it wasn't like a paying job. So the tax collectors had to survive by whatever money they collected over what Rome required. You see where this is headed? So in order for Zacchaeus to live, he was like, okay, well, I got to give Rome like my three, their $3. 
but I need, to, I need to charge this guy five so I can make two. And there was no guidelines. So a tax collector could charge whatever he wanted to charge. So some collectors could be extremely real wealthy, some not so much, but it was up to them. And who are they collecting taxes for? They were collecting taxes for, from the Jewish people's perspective, the enemy. This is the empire that's occupying their land. The taxes are breaking their economic back. And Zacchaeus is a Jew who has just agreed to collect taxes for the enemy. These people, are, I would suggest, not any uh, tax collectors in the first century were no more like than they are in the 21st century. And so he is an outsider. But uh, this is interesting. Every one of our gospels, we have four gospels, four good news accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and every one of them is different. Every one of them is slightly different, gives a slightly different per perspective on who Jesus is. I love that. And in Luke, what's interesting is that the tax collectors, multiple portrayals of tax collectors in Luke, and they are actually the ones who respond to Jesus the most. I think it's because they've been ostracized so much. They know what it means to be an outsider. So when Luke says, hey, this guy is a tax collector. In fact, he's a chief tax collector. He's a tax collector manager, and he's doing well. He's kind of setting you up to say, like, look, he's probably going to be really, really open to what Jesus says. But it also says he's very wealthy. And in Luke, particularly, wealthy people don't make out so well. All this to say is that there's this ambiguity in what we expect out of Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector, so he's probably open to what Jesus has to say. But according to Luke, rich people in Luke really struggle with understanding what it means to live in the kingdom of God. So what's going to happen? So he says Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And this is an interesting thing in the text. Uh, it's not present as much in the New Living, but if you were to look in the NIV or even in the Greek, you would see the repetition of this idea of Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. And he positions himself to try and see Jesus. It's the same Greek word. And then we're told later that when Jesus and Zacchaeus go to his house, the crowd sees that. And they're like, oh man, Jesus is hanging out with you know, notorious sinners. Should be a great name for a band. Whenever you're studying the Bible and you see this repetition of phrases, the writer is trying to draw your attention to something. And here's what I think he's trying to draw his attention to. Zacchaeus, who I hate to break this to you, but there's a, there's a chance that he actually wasn't a wee little man. The Greek is actually that he was low in stature, is what it literally says. So what a lot of people actually are starting to conjecture is like his height wasn't the problem. Maybe he was a young guy or maybe just people in his community didn't think much of him. His stature, it wasn't his physical stature, it was his social stature. So when Jesus comes by, they're like, get out of here, dude. You can't see, you can't see this guy. But Zacchaeus wants to see him, see him, see him. So he crawls up a tree, which was probably a little bit awkward for him. Like throwing himself out there like that. And then I love what it says in, the, uh, in verse 5, Zacchaeus wants to what? He wants to see Jesus. What's verse 5 says? Verse 5 says, when Jesus comes by, he sees Zacchaeus. 
But the reality is, is that this guy, this Messiah, this prophet, this savior that Zacchaeus wants to see, that guy is actually looking for Zacchaeus. As one commentator put it this week, who's seeking whom? Zacchaeus thinks he's the one seeking. But when he gets out in the open, Jesus is like, no, I'm actually the one doing the seeking. And I see you. And then he says this, come down because I have got to eat dinner at your house. When? Today. And you have to understand in the first century, in that culture, to eat with someone was to accept them. To eat them was to say, you are part of my, uh, uh, my people. You are my friend. So make no mistake. When Jesus says, I got to eat at your house today, he's saying like, you have got to come into my circle of influence today. You have got to be my people today. I am offering you salvation today. Don't worry about getting your life straight, Zacchaeus. Don't worry about straightening things out yet, Zacchaeus. Let's just have a meal together because I've been looking for you for a long time. So Zacchaeus responds. He, uh, he goes to have a meal. Zacchaeus responds to, to Jesus and says, look, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I've cheated people, I'm going to give them back four times as much, which in Luke's gospel is his way of saying, I am in the kingdom. I am down with this, Jesus. And then Jesus says, salvation has come to this home again. When? Today. I just love that. I love that Jesus is like, hey, let's have a meal together. Why don't you call your people call my people, Zacchaeus. We'll have it next week or we'll figure it out. He's like, no, we're going to get this thing done right now, right now. And then he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. So in, a, in an instant and in an interaction, Jesus changes Zacchaeus' identity. He changes his story, right? He's gone from tax collector, wealthy guy, to a guy who's given away his wealth, and a guy who is called a son of Abraham, which is not a genetic thing. It is saying, you are a part of God's people now, Zacchaeus. In an instant, right? But if you're like me, sometimes I wonder, we're not told what happens after Jesus leaves Jericho. I mean, Zacchaeus has to pay. He says, I'm going to pay back the people I've cheated. I'm going to give my money away. But Zacchaeus still has a life to live out. And he still, I would venture to say he's still going to come up with things in his past that he's like, man, there are things that I can't undo. My identity has changed. My present has changed. My future has certainly changed. But my past is still my past. Other people in the, other people in the New Testament have the same problem. There's a guy named Paul who wrote a huge portion of the New Testament. He writes these words, uh, has a powerful encounter with Jesus, and at the end of his life, he's writing to a guy named Timothy. And he says, let me tell you, Timothy, God's grace is good. He said, because I used to persecute the church. Paul presided over executions. Paul presided over torture, stoning, beating of Christians. And at the end of his life, he's like, God's grace is good because I've got things in my past and yet I'm still here. In another part of, of one of his letters, Paul says, look, uh, he really 
finally excavates and brings it all to a head because Paul says, look, there are two things inside of me at war. It's brilliant. He writes this in the book of Romans. Paul says, look, I've got this thing inside of me. Paul calls it his flesh. Other people call it the false self. He says, look, I've got a thing inside me and everything that I know that I'm supposed to do, guess what? My, my flesh says, don't do it. And the things that I know I shouldn't do, there's this piece inside of me that says, hey, do that thing that you know you're not supposed to do. And then Paul says, look, I have this other part inside of me that is the spiritual self, that is the beloved of God, that is the true self. And it wants to obey God. And Paul, a writer of most of the New Testament, a huge portion of the New Testament, Paul's like, these things are living inside of me. And I think what he's trying to get at is like, like I said before, the truth of the matter is, Matt Damon, he is David Webb and Jason Bourne. That he is in ways innocent. And he is in ways a victim. And yet, in other ways, he is a killer. He does have blood on his hands. And when I get honest with myself and the struggle of, that I've lived with my life is to say, oh my gosh, you know what I wished would have happened when I signed on for this God thing is that God just kind of zapped all those memories of all those crazy things I've done. I wish he would just zap them out of my head. They never existed, Eric. You'll forget about them, Eric. But after I lived enough of my life, I was like, oh, God, they're not going away. In fact, I remember more of them sometimes. Anybody? Anybody been there? What's going on with this God? And I really struggled because I didn't want to remember those things. I want my life to be that straight line. But those things would drum up shame and fear in my life. And they weren't going away. And I struggled for a long time. Until I met somebody who helped me unpack my life in a very profound way. And he said to me one day, he said, Eric, you need to come to terms with the fact that you wouldn't be who you are if you hadn't done what you did. And I was like, wait a minute. And it even took me a while to get that, as simple as it is. And what it meant was that, like, look, I've got a choice to either be grateful for all of my life and try to integrate those things or to keep on trying to deny and repress the decisions I've made. But the more I tried to deny and repress them, the actually the more negative effect they were having on my life. I had to learn to, this is crazy talk, now get this, but I had to learn to accept even, even the darkest things I've done. Because you know why? Ultimately, you know what those dark things did? Opened my eyes to the need for God. That's what it means. When, you, when I was at my darkest, when I did the craziest things, when I would be on my knees crying in shame, what have I done, what have I done, what have I done? God's like, you know, ultimately when you get on the other side of this, you're gonna learn that that was the moment that you needed somebody else in your life, a higher power than me, than, than me. And so God's like, yes, Eric, even in those moments, you gotta be grateful for those. I was like, say What? So I'm on a journey with that, but I'm starting to turn the corner. And I want to leave you with this, a couple thoughts, like 
Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude for our stories. Gratitude for the crazy decisions we've made. Gratitude for the ugly things in our past. Somehow that's where we have to get because those things are inside us and they're not going away. Now, let me be clear. It's my hope and my desire and, my, and the grace that God gives me that I live more out of that true self, out of that belovedness. Year after year, I'm a little bit better and I'm a little bit better. And that false self is a little bit more, less pervasive. But I'm still grateful for the journey that I've been on. I started at the beginning of this and I said, uh, you know, the central question that I was wrestling with is how do I deal with my past? Here's what part of the good news is. I don't deal with my past. Jesus dealt with my past. It's my job to trust that reality and to be grateful for it. But I don't go fix my past. There's nothing I can do to make God love me more or less. He didn't say get your life together so you could be good enough for me to love you. He just said, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree because we got a meal to eat and I've got love to give you. And that's the way this thing works. But it doesn't just stop there. Paul writes this, uh, this, this passage in the uh, book of Ephesians to another church and I was thinking about this this morning in the New Living, he's writing about how you should live your life. And he said, look, he uses this great metaphor. He says, there are deeds of light and there's deeds of darkness. And he's like, look, deeds of darkness, they're just like, they're the things that you shouldn't be doing. You know, clean up your language. Don't make crazy decisions. These are the things that he's just calling, I don't know, just wild living, crazy decisions. He said, this is the deed of darkness. And then he says, in the New Living, he's like, bring those deeds into the light. Right, which is a little bit intimidating if you've ever made a decision in the darkness, okay? And in the New Living, it says, look, bring it to the light because light makes everything visible. Now, again, that's kind of terrifying. You got to trust in God's grace and you got to trust in your community to bring out some of your deeds of darkness into the light. Here's the way the new uh, the NIV puts it, and I love this. I think it's a now, I'm not saying which translation is right or wrong, but I love this translation. He says, look, bring those deeds out into the light because everything that is illuminated is a light. So he says, there are things in your past that are sort of dwelling in darkness under a curse. And then he says, there's this crazy thing that as you bring those things into the light, that actually what happens they actually become the actual things that, are, that attract people to the restoration of the world. So, the deeds that I've done in my darkness, and again, I've got my skeletons, you've got yours. And there are things that are on that list, and they're terrifying to bring out. But as I bring them out, and as I put them, and I say, man, I'm, I'm not proud of those, but I'm grateful that I've got to where I've gotten God that the things on that list is that there's other people in a room like this and they see the things on that list. Oh, Eric, pride. Oh, Eric, self-centered. Oh, Eric, you've got all these things in darkness. 
boy, that, that list looks like my list. So Eric, why not, maybe I should go talk to Eric or, or maybe other people in this community in your growth groups, you bring things out of your darkness and put and go, here's my list. And then it actually, it becomes a light and someone else goes, man, I should talk to that person because my thing is still in the closet. My thing is still in the darkness. Maybe I can get a little bit better. That's my story. I'm learning how to bring all those things out into the darkness, and it is scary, but I trust. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that God is trustworthy. And I want to be grateful for every crazy decision that I've made to bring me to this morning, this moment, because it wouldn't be any other way. I wouldn't be who I, where I was and who I was if I hadn't done what I did. And that's the truth. So here is where I ask you about you. Band's going to come up. What's on your list? What are the things in your past that you wish were not there? Because God is inviting you to take a risk of trust (laughs) and say, trust me that I can make those things make sense in my world. And so what I'm gonna do is, I'm just gonna invite you into a moment. And this part of this is my moment, and I'm just gonna share it with you. But in a moment, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to think about those things that are in your closet, that those things that are in your darkness. And I'm thinking about mine. And we're going to pray together. And I'm just going to offer a short prayer phrases and you can repeat them where you sit to just maybe take a chance to bring some of that stuff out to God this morning. So, and then the band's going to sing a song and we'll close our time. So let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's give each other some privacy and honor this moment. And again, just repeat after me if you want. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that my future is secure and my present is making increased sense. God, forgive me when I've tried to deny my past or pretend that my past doesn't exist. God, help me to trust you. Help me to accept my past for what it is. And thank you for your radical grace and love that says, today is the day of salvation. And thank you for seeking me save me.